0: Bye. Hello, 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 and welcome to our final content episode of this
1: season. How are you guys feeling? We're almost at the end. I, for one, am saddened by the fact that we're done with this season, with our final episode, Uh, and one that's going to be very close to my own heritage and heart. But just to clarify, this is not our final, final
0: episode. This is our final explainer episode. We have, as always, our recap episode. Uh, that will be coming soon. If you guys can't get enough of Elliot, Mian and I, you know, that's that's our last sort of tribute to you guys. Uh, but this is, this is our final explainer.
2: And that's the episode where I believe we go around in a circle and kind of give our top three, right? Like our favorite. Yes,
0: underrated. And then we'll also talk a bit about what we liked and what we hope to do next season. Potentially. I think we've always enjoyed doing our community episodes, meaning deep diving into a specific community in Singapore, seeing the heritage of Singapore, their relationship with Singapore, and then most importantly, how that contributes to our understanding of the Singapore identity. Normally, we tend to get a guest from that community to speak to us, but today we are lucky to have now our very own. Elliot, who is part of the. Who is not an
1: expert, who is not an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but a representative nonetheless. If you've
0: watched any sort of content around Singapore, you would have seen, if not people from the Piranha community, at least motifs or cultural sort of artifacts from the Peranakan community. We can't help but show off that part of it, right? And that comes across from the Singapore Airlines Kabaya that you may see, right? Oh, yes. uh, all the way down to Crazy Rich Asians, which was basically about a Piranakan family.
1: We had little Nonya on TV as well for a long
2: time. Yeah.
1: What an acclaimed show that was. It's
2: currently on Netflix.
0: It's interesting because we'll later find out that the Piranakan culture is a quote-unquote dying culture. There is a lot of efforts to preserve the practices Mm -hmm. that the Piranakans have been so well associated with. But at the same time, I also thought, you know, when I I was doing some of the research for this episode, there was actually some parts of Paranakan history that I didn't know that are uh, maybe slightly controversial, slightly interesting, mm-hmm. uh, and worth a discussion about. I don't know whether we'll be able to have any sort of declarative views because as Elliot mentioned, he's not an expert.
1: I'm only an expert on the food elements of Peranakan culture. And I, I read the research that, that Robek put together. I think I can confirm a lot of these, like some of the practices, some of the heritage, uh, some of the stories that are passed through, at least from my grandmother's generation, like the one that I'm much closer to in terms of the nuclear family scale
0: yeah and I kind of want to hear the stories as well actually because I think a lot of you know quote-unquote dying culture is being able to preserve the stories that people have mm. and being able to at least reminisce in some ways on like what life used to be in all these communities mm-hmm. so let's dive right in we're gonna start with a bit of a background just to be able to understand really what the term Peranakan refers to. Generally, when you talk to anyone in Singapore and possibly in you know, Malaysia Malaysian Indonesia, the term Peranakan refers to a person of mixed Chinese and Malay slash Indonesian heritage. So it's a Chinese plus Malay or Chinese plus Indonesian sort of heritage. This is, I guess, what people associate with the term, but it's not necessarily a strict definition, right? Because later on, we'll see that there are different types of Puranakans, including Indian plus Malay. Many Singaporean Puranakans trace their origins to 15th century Malacca, where ancestors were taught to be Chinese traders who married local women in Malacca. Peranakans were also known as the Straits Chinese, as they were born in the strait settlements. The Malay-Indonesian phrase, Orang China Bukan China, which means a not Chinese, a Chinese person, encapsulates the complex relationship between Peranakan identity and Chinese identity. The particularities of genealogy and the unique syncretic culture are the main features that distinguish the Peranakan from descendants of later waves of Chinese immigrants to the region. So while some Peranakans have retained their cultural practices, actually today, if you go and try to find them, I think somewhat like Elliot, actually, many have assimilated into the larger Chinese community. And so besides food, actually, there's very little
1: that most people can, can tie back to that heritage. Even stuff like language itself, because the Peranakan language already, the word syncretic is very important here, right? Because it's a mishmash of a bunch of different heritages uh, placed together under certain circumstances. So even as a Creole language, right? Like Peranakan's generally speak like Baba like Baba Malay as they call it right so mm-hmm. it's it's very slangish in uh, in terms of uh, how they've adapted the region whether it's from Indonesia whether it's from from Malacca itself the kind of uh, bahasa that it was, it was uh, taking it from
0: absolutely so speaking about language actually you know we talked about what the term Peranakan refers to but what does it literally mean well we're gonna do a pop quiz to figure it out <laughs>
2: final pop quiz of the season. Man, you can take
1: a stab at this because I, I know oh, the answer. Yeah, this it's is... not a
2: fair game anymore. So the pop quiz is really just for Charmian today. <laughs> so my guess is that the word literally means royalty. I don't know why. Because you're friends with me. That's why. No, I mean... <laughs> no, but I don't know why. I've, I've always had this impression of Peranakan culture to be very decadent and just I don't know I just think everything about the culture is so so beautiful and I and I say this from the bottom of my heart I'm not even Boranakan but I enjoy the food the culture
1: you like the batang right? you like the batang
2: yeah the ba-tang too, tula
1: <laughs> the batang is sick <laughs> well Elliot you said that you know the answer so I'm pretty you... certain if not grandma would be ashamed it should translate into like uh like locally born and bred or like locally locally born lah essentially
0: that is uh illiteral uh, definition of Puranakan, but oh. uh, the very, very literal definition in Indonesian and Malay means uterus. Oh boom. my gosh. If you go and Google, what does Puranakan mean? It, no
1: way. But it does not mean royalty. I like the fact that Mian associated with it because actually, if you look at a lot of the um, even architecture or any of the like cultural elements of it, there is a certain tie in with the rich and is, uh, right? the wealthy. I mean, we'll we'll talk a lot about that in today's episode, but I'm almost certain we'll cover some of the aesthetic and almost luxurious elements of the Peranakan culture and heritage. Remember how I said
0: that not all Peranakans are of Chinese ancestry? And actually, I thought this was a very Mm -hmm. sort of important point, right? Because when I went to a museum exhibit at the Indian Heritage Centre, I was introduced to a subcommunity called the Chittimalakas, right? And these are Indian Peranakans. So so actually, I, I was realizing that, you know, we tend to use the term Paranakans to mean Chinese plus Malay or Chinese plus Indonesian, but actually there's a much bigger community that can lay claim to the term Puranakan. This includes non-Chinese Peranakans such as the Bugis Peranakans, the Arab and the Java Peranakans. So these are basically people who were from the Bugis, uh, region, the Arab region, Java region, who, again, married people in the straight settlement, right? So people in Malacca and in Singapore who were locally born. And so that's not Chinese. It's kind of like a mishmash within the Malay slash Arab culture. Uh, and within the Strait settlements, there's also a small but significant community of Peranakan Indians, such as Chittimalacas. And they were said to have traced around the same time as the Peranakan Chinese, when Tamil merchants also began marrying local women. The Jawi Puranakan community was also another notable Puranakan group, uh, which basically consists of straits born Muslims of mixed Indian and Malay parentage, right? So it's, it's quite interesting how there are actually so many other Puranakan cultures, but we tend to only remember the Chinese Puranakans, maybe because, I guess, they are majority race, but also maybe because they've... Had the boldest sort of cultural expression and the loudest that it's kind of permeated through the media. So yeah, I think it's always just useful to remember that the term Puranakan is actually much broader than just Chinese Puranakan.
1: As uh, as Ben King likes to say, ah, uh, is a state of mind.
2: see <gasps> royalty. It's about <laughs> it's about feeling luxury.
1: <laughs> it's quite a diverse group of people, that's for sure. So we're gonna jump right into the history. And how this all started. So we've talked a bit about the influences and the ways uh, these different communities start to boom up at the same time. Uh, but while the origins of Singapore's Chinese Peranakans are hard to pin down, some scholars and writers actually believe them to be descendants of Chinese immigrant traders who married local women or Bataks from Sumatra. Now, in the 15th century, so we're talking about the 1400s, some small city-states of the Malay Peninsula often paid tribute to various kingdoms, such as those of China and Siam. Close relations with China were established in the early 15th century during the reign of Pamesawa, while Admiral Zheng He, a Muslim Chinese, visited Malacca and Java during his expedition. According to a legend, in 1459 CE, the Emperor of China sent a princess, Hang Lipo, or Hanglipo, how you'd say it in English, to the Sultan of Malacca as a token of appreciation for his tribute, the nobles, which is like five hundred sons of ministers and servants who accompanied the princess, initially settled in Bukit China and eventually grew into a class of Straits-born Chinese known as the Peranakans. Many laborers also came as immigrants and married locals to become Peranakans. Now, Chinese men in Malacca fathered children with Javanese, Bata, and Balinese slave women. I think the whole idea of marrying slaves is not just a Southeast Asian thing. This is a very global uh, phenomenon. Their descendants moved to Penang and Singapore during the period of British rule, and Chinese men in colonial Southeast Asia also obtained slave wives from Nias. Chinese men in Singapore and Penang were supplied with slave wives of Bugis, Bata, and Balinese origin. The British colonial government tolerated the importation of slave wives since they improved the standard of living for the slaves and provided contentment for the male population. Very old school Ch- uh, thinking, I guess. The usage of slave women or housemaids as wives by the Chinese was, uh, at that point in time, widespread.
2: The entire like passage that you just read just made me feel very uncomfortable. But I understand that this is a necessary part of the history, <laughs> but if you can see my face on a webcam, it was like getting cringier and cringier.
0: I think it's fair, right? I, I mean, I think Elliot's point around the fact that at a certain time and context, no one thought this was problematic. Or actually, someone did think later on, we'll hear an excerpt where someone was like, it's kind of problematic. But, you know, net net, I think it's probably for the best. But, but you're right, man. Actually, at the same time, it is kind of weird to think that a lot of people in Singapore probably have heritage that's tied to slavery
2: right? Mm-hmm. Especially
0: in the in the Peranakan uh, Chinese culture, which is a bit interesting. I, I don't know how to think about that.
2: Yeah. And I think my reaction to this is, isn't just like pertaining to like Singapore's history or like our regional history, but just like we have come so far <laughs> for humankind, you know, it's like, whoa, we have come a long way. And I'm just glad that I am a woman born in Today's age.
0: <laughs> Elliot, have you done like your ancestry? I have never owned a slave woman in my life. <laughs> no, that was not my question. <laughs> <The hell? laughs> no. Have you ever done your have you ever done your ancestry? Do you know like no, which uh, side is the, the non Chinese? Like where does your non Chinese heritage come from?
1: I've never done a twenty three and me. I can't afford it. It's mm-hmm. a bit expensive. Uh, so if you guys want to sponsor it, by all means, I'll take it. I'll circle uh, the ending. What's up, guys? I, I've had stories passed out from my from my family. In fact, the, the, the non-Chinese side is uh, closer to my uh, my mum's, And I'm only Pranakan because close, I'm closer to my... I guess, culturally, I've learned more of the Pranakan heritage. Even though I think from my father's side of the house, I'm actually Hainanese. So if you guys want to call me out on like, being a fake Pranakan, by all means, lah. Nah, just state <laughs> of mind, bro. But yeah, so on my mom's side... Actually, it was her whole dad's paternal genealogy right. um, that actually contributes to the non-Chinese side of things. And it goes back pretty far off because um, her family's roots trace all the way back to Indonesia, actually. So
0: potentially...
1: I Yeah, potentially my family had slave wives at some point in time, is what you're saying.
0: I, I didn't say it,
1: but you did. I did, I did. I mean, I, I'm accusing my ancestors right now. I'm sure one of them did. It's interesting because you'll notice that the kind of food that's passed down from those from the different parts of your ancestry actually does differ quite a fair bit. Just to kind of like go on a bit of a tangent here but in Singapore if you guys are going around trying different sorts of Peranakan food places Mian, what's the one you Jiu Chia uh? Is it Guan Hosu and Guan Oh,
2: don't go to that one. Go to the other one. <laughs>
1: both are great but actually both are from very different ancestries meaning one of them is more Indonesian inspired and one of them is actually more Malacan inspired. Ah. And even though we call the dishes very similar things say like Bakwan Kapiting, the yeah, ingredients man. inside even ayam bakulat it's very different. Some have Barbie inside, some have pork, some don't because obviously if you were in the Malacan side of the house, the pork one was a big no, <laughs> as you can, as you can imagine.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, since we're going off tangent, uh, Elliot himself goes to Gonho soon, but I like to go to Old Bibic. <laughs> Just
1: letting y'all know. Yeah, because Mian Basic. So- hey!
2: Hello! <laughs> Old Bibic
1: is amazing, okay? They are both equally good. Just All go right. try for yourself. Sure. Both of them. So, I'm going to jump into an excerpt from John Anderson. I think this is what Rovig was alluding to earlier on. Uh, an agent of the government of the Prince of Wales Island. So I'm going to just read it for you first and then we can make our conclusions and responses after this. Here we go. I'm going to give my best British voice. It cannot be denied, however,
2: (laughs) that the (laughs) existence... Okay, it's really good. And just forward, I can tell you have a great accent there, but if we were to take the information seriously, I think we would have to hear from Elliot. It cannot be denied, however,
1: (laughs) that the existence of slavery in this quarter in former years was of immense advantage in procuring a female population for Penang. From Asaban loan, there used to be sometimes 300 slaves, principally females, exported to Malacca and Penang in a year. The women get comfortably settled as the wives of opulent Chinese merchants and live in the greatest comfort. Their families attach these men to the soil and many never think of returning to their native country. The female population of Penang is still far from being upon par with the male. And the abolition, therefore, of slavery has been a vast sacrifice to philanthropy and humanity. As the condition of the slaves who were brought to the British settlements was materially improved, and as they contributed so much to the happiness of the male population and the general prosperity of the settlement, I am disposed to think, although I detest the principles of slavery as much as any man, that the continuance of the system here could not, under the benevolent regulations which were enforced to prevent abuse, have been productive of much evil. The sort of slavery indeed which existed in the British settlements in this quarter had nothing but the name against it, for the condition of the slaves who were brought from the adjoining countries was always ameliorated by the change. They were well fed and clothed, the women became wives of respectable Chinese, and the men who were in the least industrious easily emancipated themselves, and many became wealthy. Severity by masters was punished, and in short, I do not know any race of people who were, and had every reason to be, so happy and contented as the slaves formerly, and debtors as they are now called, who came from the east of Sumatra and other places. This is John Anderson's observations of at least... How the Pranakan settlements kind of like formed up in the treatment of women.
0: First thing we have to acknowledge is that the voice of the actual slave woman is not there, <laughs> right? So we don't even know whether this is really how they perceived it, you know, notwithstanding John Anderson's point that their lives were materially improved and all this sorts of stuff. If you listen to our Secret Societies episode, our prostitution episode, you would know that a lot of the, the dynamics driving vice activities was basically a large male population that was very overworked, was very tired, and basically did not have any female population to to mingle with and to possibly start families with. Right. So, in some ways, uh, the, this point around like getting rooted to the soil by having families was a way to curb a lot of those vice activities. Also, by actually getting them to get into productive families in this sort of highly immigrant. I guess settlement. You needed to find a way to, to to balance off the huge influx of men by getting somehow another a huge influx of women, uh, which we'll see later on. Actually, does change the sort of use of slave women. Actually, does get reduced once immigration trends tend to be a bit more balanced on the gender front.
1: My mom used to tell me that Baba men are like the slaves to the to the wives. <laughs> like, and my observations of all the Baba men I've ever met, right, is that we're all little like Oops. obedient men. Yeah, we're all Sims. <laughs> we're all Sims for sorry our you wives. Say that, uh, so quickly. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but I agree. Like we're all little Sims who love our wives, and we will bow at their feet. And when they say go make the kue we say how many. You know, it's not no. <laughs> it's like wow, yeah how the tables have turned. And you know, such intermarriages took place up to only like the mid-19th century when women in China did not migrate overseas. Now, these Pranakans were known as the Straits Chinese, as, as Rovig mentioned earlier on, as they were usually born in the British colonial strait settlements of Singapore, Penang, and Malacca. During colonial times, they were also known as Mian very astute in pointing this out earlier, but they were known as the King's Chinese in reference to their status as British subjects after the Straits settlement became a crown colony in 1867. So, in a way, you're not wrong. Man. Rovig was just being harsh on you. Uh, <laughs> they are royalty in a certain way. Just that you're, you're the king's Chinese, I guess. Many of the early Peranakans were entrepreneurial traders and shopkeepers, uh, and a significant number were also involved in the real estate, shipping, and banking sectors. I guess nothing much has changed since then. <laughs> As most of the Peranakans received an English education and were fluent in the language, many of them were appointed by the British authorities as community and civic leaders. What I would also point out is that uh, from my understanding, um, actually a lot of of, of why the English educator is because there was a lot of conversion into into Catholicism and Christianity at this point in time. Mm-hmm. So a lot of uh, like sons and daughters were sent to uh, essentially convent schools or mission schools. Mm-hmm. So places like, if if I look back in the history of uh, a school like Maristella or, or, or SGI. The yeah, the, all the IJ convents, they actually have a very rich Pradakan history. You'll notice that a lot of their big donors where they name halls after tend to be old school, big piranacan money kind of fellas.
2: Now that you mentioned this also, maybe they tend, and I'm, I'm saying this very uh, carefully, maybe they tend to be a bit more well-off because they received education for both languages. And at that time, uh, that gets you ahead, right?
0: If you listen to our Singlish episode, back in like season one mm-hmm. actually this was a big reason why singlish became a thing right because a lot of the Peranakans or basically people who were born in Southeast states would go to these mission schools or like these christian schools get educated in the queen's english and then people were like oh you guys are so atas right we're gonna purposely make fun of you by creating a creole language called singlish right and so there was a, immediately a class sort of issue that emerged as the Peranakans started to get educated in some of these schools, right? And so the fact that they were called the King's Chinese, of course, did not help. Imagine someone who, you know, immigrated to Singapore with their Chinese parents and then were told, hey, there are these kings Chinese and you're what regular Chinese. That's a bit weird, right? <laughs> so yeah, immediately there was a lot of class issues and opened up.
2: Yeah, and you know, speaking of language and food and attire and basically how the image uh, I guess the image that the Peranakans had tied to them whether it was, you know, subconsciously or, or being endowed onto them, Peranakan culture is usually described as a hybrid of Chinese, Malay and Western cultures. And while specific cultural practices and customs may differ from generation to generation and family to family, there are a few elements that are common to the Peranakan culture. And one such element is, like we were talking about earlier on, language. Now, Peranakan men are known as Baba, while the women are known as Nonya or Nyonya. Now, besides English, the Peranakans speak Baba Malay, which is a patois described as an adulteration of the Malay language with a liberal mix of Hokkien words and phrases. An outstanding feature of Peranakan culture is the cuisine, which we all love, which is also known as Nonya food after the ladies who cook it. Peranagan cuisine has strong Malay and Indonesian influences, which can be seen in the use of rempa, which means spices, and coconut milk. Now, pork is an often used ingredient in Nonya cooking, unlike in Malay cuisine, where its use is obviously strictly forbidden. Some of the signature Nonya dishes include babi ponte, which is a braised pork with salted bean paste, ayam yes. buah keluak. Oh, I love this one. Chicken braised in a thick, spicy tamarind gravy with buah keluak nuts. And my personal favourite, oh my gosh, I'm salivating as I say this, beef rendang. And that's, of course, beef stewed in coconut milk and spices. Now the nonyas are also well known for their sweet cakes, often referred to as nonya kueh. And in the past, most nonyas were expected to know how to cook, as this skill was seen as an accomplishment.
1: You guys want to hear a fun? You want to hear a fun fact about a dish which I don't think you guys know is Peranakan? It's misiam. Legit. Misiam mi is a Peranakan dish. It's actually. Uh, I mean, you can Google it. Some people will would fight you on this, but yeah, I was going to say you're trying to fight with the Malays. Is it? What's going on? <laughs> but as far as I know, Mi Siam is traditionally a Peranakan dish.
2: Okay, we're gonna have we're gonna have some riled up audiences who say
1: no. The, the hint actually <laughs> the the hint actually came up much earlier when we we're talking about the history segment because we actually had relations with the, both the Chinese and Siam itself. That's where the early iterations of this was said to be from that brings up
0: a, a, a useful conversation point also about you know I I, I mean I think the Baranakans have a claim to a lot of food, especially the ones that are like Iamboakolog and Babi Pongte. But I think there's also a big range of food like rendang that people a dispute, right? Whether yeah, it's like sure. actually Puranakan or is it actually Malay? I mean, the truth is that as Singaporeans are going to eat all of it and you know, we're happy to have variety. I, I If you listen to our Nasi Lemak episode, you'll actually hear one of the big debates where there was someone who tried to make a Puranakan Nasi Lemak and people are like, hey, come on, like, ah, there's no such thing. Right? It's <laughs> Malay food. You add some blue pea rice, you call it Puranakan food. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make right? sense. Exactly. So, so there is also probably some usefulness to... To recognize that you know not all food can be called peranakan Some of it's just Malay food that the peranakans also enjoyed because hey, they all lived in the same neighborhood,
1: right? So yes, exactly. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh but yeah, for just fun fun facts about like uh actually your your what roving's is pointing out is actually very interesting to me because I'm saying that my grandma likes to believe that Peranakans love stealing stuff. In the sense of like, no, we'll mishmash a bunch of things together. We'll take from one culture and another, put it together and then say it's ours. She always says, she always says nothing is ours until we make it. So I was like, hmm,
2: That's sus. so cute.
1: But yeah, she's a very cute old lady.
2: Now, besides cooking, Peranakan girls were also expected to excel in embroidery and beadwork, which are the two distinctive features of Peranakan fashion. And the traditional costume for Peranakan women is the Nonya Kabaya, which began replacing the Baju Panjang, which is Malay for long dress, as the outfit of choice from the 1920s onwards. Originally from Indonesia, the kabaya was adopted by both Malay and Baranagan women, but with important differences. Now, the Malay kabaya is a loose-fitting long blouse made of opaque cotton or silk with little or no lace embroidery. On the other hand, the Nonya kabaya is a shorter, tighter-fitting, sheer fabric blouse that is often decorated with embroidered motifs known as sulam, such as roses, peonies, uh, orchids, daisies, butterflies, bees, fish, and chickens. Wow. Being semi transparent, the kabaya is usually worn over a camisole and secured with a gurusang, which is a set of three interlinked brooches. And the kabaya top is traditionally worn together with a batik sarong skirt and paired with intricately hand beaded slippers known as kasut menek. However, in recent times, the younger generations of Puranakan ladies have experimented pairing the nonya kabaya with Western dresses, skirts, and even jeans. Which I must say, hot, like sexy, bro. All right. Like cool. that gets me well, jeans,
1: going. Really? You know? It's like she was a skater boy. She said see you later, boy, <laughs> kind of vibes, bro. You don't get it.
2: <laughs> some some personal opinions <laughs> have flooded the chat. <laughs> I
1: don't just thought you were a bit confused by the the chickens bit of the embroidered motifs. Like, but actually, chickens are a very big part of the, practical kind of aesthetic. Actually, when you think about it, because they they used to be one of those people that would keep chickens in their backyard, like you know the kampong the kampong fellas, right? They love doing that. But you you notice that a lot of the bowls that they have, and we talk yeah. about ceramics. One of the that we don't the talk about actually oils. a lot of chickens. Yes, and they love the chicken pattern on it. They love the chickens on it. I've never so, thought about that.
2: But now that you mentioned it, I, I do recall always seeing that motive on a lot of their crockery.
1: If you go to any like Peranakan restaurant, if they don't serve it in a chicken bowl, my mom will usually say, ya, not authentic man. <laughs> <laughs> I say, don't judge lah. Maybe they their their bowls over, they're saving costs, okay?
0: Alright. Well, we've been able to unpack a lot about Peranakan culture. So far, we really understand the history of the Peranakans. When we come back from the break, we're going to be learning even more about Puranakans today, uh, especially how they practice religion, marriage, and where you can find some of, I guess, the remnants of their culture in Singapore. Stay tuned. It's crazy to think that we're in season five of the SG Explained podcast, and you, the listener, have been a great part of that experience. If you like what we've been doing over the last few seasons and you want to support some independent podcasters, here are three ways that you can do so. The first is to subscribe, and that's by just clicking the subscribe button or follow button on any of the platforms you're listening to us on. The second is to share. Share our content, our episodes with people that you think would enjoy learning about the Singapore identity and challenging some of the preconceived notions that they may have. And finally, directly support us by clicking on the anchor link in the description area where you can make a small contribution that helps us support some of the costs of producing these great podcasts. Thank you again for being part of the SGXplain family, and we look forward to making many more great episodes for you. And we're back from the break. So if you... Uh, have been wanting to know more about Piranakan. Don't worry, we have a lot more for you. And right now we're going to be talking about the arts culture within Piranakan culture, right? And so it's it's quite interesting how there's a distinct form of singing and dancing amongst the Piranakans. Actually, Elliot, are you exposed to this part of Piranakan culture, the singing and dancing part
1: of it? Unfortunately, no, I am not a singer nor a dancer. Uh, and when I sing, I only do rap. I might think about doing Puranakan rap in the future. My my album title will be called Puranakan, not Puranakan.
0: <laughs> so the distinct element of Puranakan culture is the practice of dundang sayang, which involves the singing of verses in the Malay poetic form known as pantun. The singing is accompanied with music from an orchestra that usually comprises a rebana, which is a Malay drum, a viola, which is a Western violin, and a gong. So you can really see Malay instruments meets western instruments meets i assume a gong as a chinese instrument to really form i guess quite an eclectic set in the 19th century the Peranakans in malacca adopted this originally malay cultural practice when they performed the nang sayang as a form of entertainment during informal social gatherings at their homes in February 1910, the Gunung Sayang Association, also known as Pasatuan Gunung Sayang, was established in Singapore by the local Puranakan community to promote the performance of Dunang Sayang in the public domain. And if you go and Google it, you can actually still find them The Gunung Sang Association, which continues to help preserve this art form as well as to generate a greater awareness of Peranakan culture through its Wayang performances, which are basically uh, a specific type of theater performance as well. The main Wayang company is another institution that is involved in spreading awareness of Peranakan culture. And this was formed in 2004, in which the arts and community theater companies specializes in staging entertainment shows, concerts, and musical plays both in Singapore. And overseas to help promote Puranakan culture. So there's actually real ways where you can go and see some of these heritage performances and you know actually see the preservation of these cultural elements. I'm surprised
1: I've never seen this. Yeah. I only partake in one element of Puranakan culture. Mm-hmm. And I think we we know which one that is. <laughs> well, the the one that which I think I'm a bit closer to actually is on the religious aspects. Most Puranakas actually generally subscribe to Chinese belief systems such as Taoism, Confucianism, uh, Han Buddhism. And for me, uh, like most of the Pranakans I know, I actually have Roman Christian or Roman Catholic. Just like the Chinese, the Pranakans also celebrate Lunar New Year, Lantern Festival and other Chinese festivals while adopting the customs of the land they settled in as well as those of their colonial rulers. So essentially, we're just trying to take all the free holidays through.
2: Claim every holiday. We
1: want it all. You know what I'm saying. It really explains myself. I feel like I'm so apt to be Puranakan, dude. Like I just want everything. So did my ancestors. Uh, although the Puranakans historically practiced elements of Malay culture, not many of them adopted the Islamic faith. And I think this is true for my family. Some of us even um, married outwards back into Muslim families, like my cousins. Oh, so really interesting. Yeah, because the, it's it's not that far apart in in, in terms of. How we celebrate, what kind of dishes we cook. It's, that is it's true. So close. Yeah, it's so close already in that way. Uh, and instead, many Pranakan families retain the Chinese practice of ancestor worship, although uh, some, like myself, embrace Christianity, Catholicism. Um, a notable Pranakan Christian was Sir Song Ong Siang. Now, his father, Song Hut Yam, was the founder of the Princep Street Presbyterian Church. Ooh. The younger Song served as the church's deacon. elder for 41 years. Uh, Do you know Lee
0: Kuan Yew and Lee Sian Lung are Puranakans
1: also? Of course I know that bro! It's like my greatest flex! (laughs) Religious wise, I think we're quite spread out. There isn't a distinct, what's that called, identity marker as to what Puranakans subscribe to religiously. Now the next question I guess is on marriage. Now, did I get a Puranakan wedding? The answer is no. Proposals of marriage were made by a gift of Penangan in a two-tiered lacquered basket known as Bakul in Malaysia or Tenang Keranjang in Indonesia. And this was given to the intended bride's parents brought by a go-between who speaks on behalf of the suitor. So very regal in its manner. You can't go there and propose yourself. Say, uh, hello, my boy, please go and uh, let this lady know of my affections. Very Uh There are rare cases where wealthy Peranakans in the past use highly decorative glided pagoda trays or botkan kandi in Indonesian uh, instead of bakusya or tenung keranjang. The wedding ceremony is interesting. It When it's Pranakan, it is largely based on Chinese tradition and is one of the most colourful wedding ceremonies. This one, I can testify. At Malacca weddings, the dondang sayang the, the dancing and rhythmic song in Malay, uh, sung and danced by guests at a wedding party, I think uh, Rovik was covering it just now, is a truly high, it's a big highlight and Spectacle. So this, I think, I don't think they do like a full theatrical performance of it, but you know like how they have flash mobs in some weddings? Yeah, we have don Oh, nice. Uh, someone would begin a romantic theme, which was carried on by others, each taking the floor in turn. Dancing in slow gyrations, as they say. Very sexy. Uh, it required quick wit and repartee, uh, often gave rise to laughter and applause when a particularly clever phrase was sung. So, you know what I was saying about like rap battles? I think like it's in our blood. Like we used to come out and just like. A riff yeah, off. come out with like. Yeah, it's like a riff off, you know? It's like come in and uh, uh, add into the chorus. The melodic accents of the Baba Nonya and the particular. Turns of phrase led to this charm of the performance. Now, the important wedding rites had to be commenced on auspicious days at specific times, according to the pecti, which is the eight Chinese characters annotating one's birth date and time, sort of like the astrology of it. It's it's the Chinese Ming style kind of stuff. Yeah, zi. At these rites, pantangs or the the taboos. I, I think you've all heard the word pantang before. Right? Like don't don't do this thing because it's a taboo. Uh, these pantangs were carefully observed the wedding rituals had to be legitimized and witnessed by elders, deities, and ancestors. I don't know how you verify the last two, but (laughs) yeah, they had to be there to be legitimized. Uh, Marriages were typically match-made back in the day. Uh, Parents and elders made the final decision, but the potential bride and bridegroom were also consulted in the process. So uh, very thankful for that. Wedding items commonly utilized the prosperous colors of red, pink, orange, yellow, and gold and were embellished with special motifs to ensure a good marriage. Similar to the Chinese, Pranakans believe that good things always comes in pairs. Therefore, many wedding items came in pairs like uh, teacups, etc. I think if you go to a Pranakan wedding today, it will feel almost like a traditional Chinese ceremony, you know, sit-down dinners.
2: All right, we've talked about the arts, uh, culture, we've talked about marriage, we've talked about religion. Finally, we're talking about the places, especially here in Singapore, where Peranakans in the past used to reside, or rather now when you head over to these locations, you can still see preservation of these historical locations. So historically, groups of Peranakans resided in several different locations here in Singapore, Notably, New Road slash Tanjong Emerald Hill. Emerald Hill is the one that's uh, in Somerset, just right opposite 313 Somerset in case. They
1: have the Great Bar, what, 5 at Emerald, which actually, if I had to make a quick note here, 5? I think it's called 5 at Emerald Hill or something like that. Inside, the aesthetics are actually very old school Puranakan. They kept a lot of like the windows and stuff.
2: Yeah, I've been to a couple of restaurants there in Emerald Hill, and oh my goodness, the interior is just—it's so so decadent. See, back yes, to royalty. Yes, it is.
1: They they like to colloquially call um, Peranakan aesthetic as like Asian Baroque. I think or Chinese mm. Baroque, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, that's that's interesting, but because it's so decorated and so. Elaborate, hence why it borrows the Baroque title.
2: Now, over at Neil Road, this area bordering Chinatown and Tanjong Paga has some historical associations with the Peranakans. In the early 1800s, Peranakan merchants, such as Mr. Tan Tok Sing himself, owned a nutmeg plantation in the area. And many wealthy Peranakan families also lived in the area until the 1920s and 1930s when they moved out to the Katong area. Now, Mr. Tan Boon Liat and Mr. Lee Hoon Leung were some of the prominent Peranakan businessmen who owned houses or resided in the area. Now, we're talking about Emerald Hill just a while ago and the Peranakans settled in this area at the turn of the 20th century. While some land developers of Emerald Hill were Peranakans, the association of the area with Peranakans was mainly due to the large number of Peranakan families who resided there. And one of the prominent Peranakans who lived in the area was Lim Boon King. Dr. Lim Boon King, a famous Peranakan physician. Today, Emerald Hill is part of the conservation area known as Peranakan Place. Hey! Side note for those of you who uh, go to Absolute, our old location was called Peranakan Place. So that explains a lot. What a plug. <laughs> what a plug, what a plug. <laughs> I learned from the best.
1: Interestingly, earlier on, we were talking about like how a lot of the Peranakans were actually real estate uh, brokers and agents, right? This was one of the hot places at the turn of the 20th century that they were keeping, like, you know, they were trying to sell. And obviously, who do you sell to? Your rich friends lah. So that's hence why this became a really big hotspot uh, back in the day.
2: And finally, Jujiet slash Katong. This area's association with the Peranakans can be traced back to the early 20th century when many Peranakan families from the Neil Road slash Tanjung Paga area shifted there. And since then, this area has been closely linked with the Puranakans. The Puranakan influence can be seen in the facades of many of the residential houses located on Kunsing Road and in the Peranakan restaurants still found in the area, which were essentially what Ellie and I were talking about. Uh, if you come to the Joo slash Katong area, you will com- be completely immersed in the Puranakan culture. And just every weekend... I see people um, like tourists, but even like locals themselves, just taking a bus down to the Juche area and taking photos in front of the the shop houses, the Peranakan shop houses.
1: Yeah, there's a Peranakan museum right there, right?
2: Oh, yes, yes, yes. And that's along uh, East Coast Road. So a big part of like the Katong food and arts culture uh, is obviously Peranakan culture. And I believe I stepped into the Peranakan museum once and it really feels like I like I'm on the set of Little Nonya. Like this guy, the guy who opens the museum, he's Baba himself, and he has kept all of the uh, antiques and just so many of the artifacts from like his own family back in the day. And it's just it's very inspiring and almost surreal to be to be speaking to someone who um, really really protects his heritage and has so much to say about his like culture and stuff.
0: Yeah, throw back to our Katong uh, episode.
1: Yeah, throw back Katong. <laughs> so I guess to kind of like wrap up our thoughts for today, maybe we can quickly do some reflections as well as maybe share with people your favorite Peranakan dish, therefore they can go and try something after they're done with this episode.
2: I mean, I already mentioned like where I go to have my Peranakan fix, but generally I love uh, chap chai and I love. Um, beef rendang and I and you have this omelette thing I don't know if that's spe- specifically Peranakan, but there's this om- like deep fried omelette thing that like I absolutely love although I feel like every every culture probably has an omelette
0: It's sounds like Chinese food yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> so I mean of course I've enjoyed good Peranakan food and like your violet wounds and like you know, your very, very classic, like blue, is it blue jasmine or blue ginger or one of these?
1: Blue things? ginger, blue yeah. Blue ginger.
0: But I think where I really, really fell in love with Piranha food was because of Chef Damien De Silva, right? And when mm. he did stuff like, back in Straits Clan, he did Kin, and then now he's doing Rumpa pa in like Pai labor. And if you go to rumpapa he does this, I think it's a fusion dish, It's not, it's not authentic, but it's basically like fried bread with like really fatty beef in the mm. middle and it's so that's so mm. fast that's awesome uh, I also like when he does um, nasi ulam which is basically nasi like a straight bread rice and Ooh. then um, he does this ota with, with a specific type of fish that's actually very difficult to to use but yeah I mean he's really good at it I, I'm not even shy about plugging this place this place is so good rum papa it's a pile but it's definitely worth by checking out.
1: I, I think my recommendation is, I, and, and I love all sorts of prada kafu, whether it's ayam bakloa, whether it's like uh, bawang kapiting, uh, but if I had to recommend a place to go to that you guys already have not mentioned, a uh, candle nut, which I think is near Demzi, that's right. They have this insane ayam bakloa, like fried rice. It's not like in those like bakloa shells that you normally have, but they take out the filling they fry it with a rice and do that thing blows my mind every time. My final reflections on like, Pranaka culture, I'm really glad that it's still alive and kicking today. Of course, we're talking about what I think is a old school privileged class uh, mm. across, you know, uh, across the streets uh, settlements. So, uh, there's no like big struggle or, or whatnot, but it was also very heartening and very humbling to hear um its own internal struggle where there was this whole idea of you know, slave wives and I guess we are past that. I don't know how we got past it essentially, but I'm glad we did. I think most people just forgot it. On the fence on this. Uh, but yeah, all in all, really glad that it's still alive and kicking and that we all get to enjoy parts of it, whatever remnants of it. Uh, is around today.
0: At the end of the day, each family has to find its own way to reconcile with its past. Huh? So, but for me, my reflections are, you know, we can't do a show on Singapore without talking about the Peranakans. But at the same time, while we celebrate so much of what Peranakan culture is, we have to remember that it's not just isolated to, you know, what people think as Chinese Peranakans. Right? That There were so many other types of Peranakans, not just in Singapore but in the region, and actually. Singapore's Peranakan culture or uh, Chinese Puranakan culture is one part of a much, much richer tapestry, right? And so that in itself is actually something to, to be excited about. And can we get more stories from these different subcultures? Can we continue to explore the richness of Puranakan culture and therefore Singapore culture? I think that's what i'm really excited about on that note that brings us to our last goodbye
2: it's not goodbye i mean we're gonna say hi again in the season review so
0: that's what i meant i mean our last explainer goodbye no more knowledge for you guys (laughs) from now on it's just all banter in our final final episode of the season get excited you know do messages to let us know what you enjoyed what you thought we could have done better in i think we're always open for feedback uh, or what episodes do you think we should prioritize for the you know the next season or any future seasons
1: yeah 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 okay with that we'll see you guys next one yeah. goodbye